Hello, welcome to Scripture Central. This is John W. Welch. I refer to him as Jack in person, and I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson. And I'm very happy to be here. What a pleasure and privilege it is to be able to talk about the Book of Mormon and what it means for the world today. I mean, it is a marvelous work and a wonder. It comes from Isaiah chapter 29. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people don't realize that that word marvel and wonder, it's the same word in Hebrew, so it's a double miracle, a miraculous work and a miracle. So marvelous is miraculous and wonder is a miracle. So it's a miracle of a miracles. Yeah. I love it. A miracle squared. Yeah, <laughs> and squared is perfected. Yeah, oh, that's great. It's a, and it lives up to that in every way. Well, and today, every we get to start with the title page, introduction, eight witnesses, a little bit of Joe Smith history. Jack has written a terrific commentary, and we have a shorter version and a longer version, all on Scripture Central. But I am really eager to encourage um, not just a, a brief overview of those, but to give some real meat. I just feel like there is so much research done on this. Would you mind if we started with a little history background? Go ahead. I'm fascinated with the timing of the whole Book of Mormon. You know, Moroni comes first on September 21st in 1823. And of course, Joseph is a young teenager at the time. He's not prepared emotionally or spiritually. And every year he hopes to get the plates from Moroni, but it takes time. And it wasn't until I started reading your book, Opening the Heavens, that I realized how Significant it was that Moroni had told him, you will get the plates when you bring the right person. Correct. Since it's not in our history of the church, we didn't know that. But the, the beginning of the Book of Mormon not only was when Joseph was spiritually and emotionally and physically ready, but he needed Emma. He needed a think, wife. Why do you think Joseph needed a wife to translate <laughs> the Book of Mormon? Well, Emma is literate. She is well-educated, and she's a good scribe. But I think more than that, she's his support. She's his Absolutely. soulmate. She believes in him. She has a testimony. And they right from are the start together. Of their marriage. Yeah. I don't imagine that the Lord would want to entrust anyone as a solo operator. We don't operate in this world alone. We need witnesses. We have companionship. Uh, I'm sure Emma and Joseph talked back and forth. I'm sure that... They helped each other in all kinds of ways. Oh, we know they did. Joseph records him. You know, we know they did. And they, of course, were living in fairly close quarters in that, <laughs> that Small little, little... little cabin in... Uh, Harmony, Pennsylvania. People who have been able to visit that Harmony uh, home where they lived realize, I know uh, my wife Jeannie likes to point out, that the woman's place, of course, was... By the hearth. By the hearth. And cooking and all of that. And the only room where Joseph was translating was in that same room. Well, it's a it's a one-room house. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And, and, and he first got the plates, though, when they were up north in New York. But the translation that we have in our scriptures is all um, from further south, either Harmony or Fayette. I think Emma and her brother Reuben are the first two scribes. And then Martin comes down um, in April of 28, and he's there for two months, or April through June 14th. And we don't know how much each did. 
Yeah, yeah. Because we don't have the records. We can't see it. I think that it was fairly a fairly small amount until Joseph and Martin could really begin working as a team. Yeah. And Joseph, I think, kept a curtain between him and Martin. The references to there being a curtain... Are only with Martin, not with the other translators. That's correct. The other thing that's interesting is Martin had already asked Joseph in the winter, was it February, when Joseph took some of the writings from the plates and, and wrote out some of those interesting Egypt, you know, reformed characters. Egyptian characters, and he had already taken them to Columbia University... And I, I found out there's only five people in America who had studied the classics in Europe and were professors at different universities. And you saw three. Didn't you see L Luther wasn't one of the professors, though? OK, he saw three people. But I'm fascinated that Martin had already done that before he felt validated to say, I'm going to give up my time. And my money and my land and a lot of other things. And, and he began acting as the scribe following that experience in Columbia saying, this is an accurate translation, which they didn't know. No one spoke Egyptian. No one knew what reformed Egyptian. It wasn't. In, but anyway. Of course, no one knows for sure what happened between Martin Harris and Charles Anthon. And, and there are different accounts, lots of them, and stories that were told. But the bottom line was it was fully satisfactory to Martin Harris. That's the bottom line. The fact that he comes back and commits everything lets us know he was satisfied. But of course, the 116 pages or however many there were get lost. And we're learning more about the details of what happened there. I think it's really important for people to know that at the same time that Martin Harris finally persuades Joseph to let him take that thinking that if I can only show people in Palmyra that we're, we really are doing something here, uh, and that will help the cause somehow, and it doesn't go well for whatever reason, people need to remember that Joseph and Emma lose their first son within that same she, month. She goes into labor the day after Martin leaves. It's in a horrific—I used to work labor and delivery. It's a horrific time for her. She is on her deathbed for two weeks. And um, finally, it's Emma, remember, who lets—who tells Joseph, you need to go take the journey. I'll stay here with my parents. So out of this, I think we learn that great sacrifices were made. And even though the Lord is, is always encouraging and complimenting and advising— and Joseph is correcting himself. He's learning how to repent. He's learning how to be faithful. And after this, of course, Joseph needs to take a time out. Moroni takes not only the plates, but I understand he takes the Urim and Thummim for a period as well. It goes back when he's going to receive section three of the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, Joseph will meet again with Moroni for, <clears throat> for the annual visit. September 22nd. 21st. 22nd. Moroni, 22nd. Day. Moroni Day. Yeah. And this is now 1820. 28. Eight. And then he has to figure out, well, what do I do next? And he prays for help. Not only does he pray for help, but there's somebody else who is finishing up teaching at the Joseph Smith Sr. home in Palmyra, and his name is Oliver Cowdery. The whole story behind that is so miraculous. I just, I look at the story of Oliver Cowdery coming like the Lord is having a master's chess game. And it is absolutely amazing. He wasn't even supposed to take the job. It was for his brother. And, you know, that just every little piece is getting him. He meets David Whitmer at the right time. And, then, and they're good friends. And they're good friends immediately. And Oliver Cowdery finishes the school year, 
in the early spring. I didn't know their school was over so early, but I guess you have to Which start for farming. You, for farming, you, you have out to out in the fields. Yeah. So by the last couple of days in March, he's talking Samuel Smith into coming down with him, and they walk that over 140 miles. They do this long walk, and they're all on foot, and it's still cold outside. They arrive on Sunday night, April 5th, 5th. to Harmony, Pennsylvania. And, and when you think of the skills that are required, I mean, Oliver Cowdery is a great penman. He's good with language. He knows how to spell. He will become the editor of The Messenger and Advocate. He is a man who was prepared and when the church is organized, what's the first commandment that's given to the church? Keep a record. A record shall be kept. And, of course, Oliver Cowdery is uh, already crucial for that. Yes. It wasn't just that Oliver was curious about this and says he wants to come. No, he had a revelation. He was praying there in Palmyra. He's curious. He's heard about it. He is spiritually sensitive enough that he has a vision and the Lord appears to him. I've often wondered what that first conversation between Joseph and Oliver might have consisted of, because Joseph will recognize, as Oliver describes what he has seen, that Oliver has seen what Joseph has seen. He has seen the Lord. He knows what he looks like. He knows that he's been called. And Jack, are you getting that from outside sources, or are you getting that from the Doctrine and Covenants in Section 6? Is well, it? it's partly there. But it's mostly in Joseph Smith's own 1832 account, where he says this, Oliver came and he had had a vision of this kind. So Joseph is now able to accept Oliver. As the man who the Lord sent. The Lord was the one who sent him. And the next day uh, becomes a sacred day in our uh, faith tradition that it is April 6th. But I'm just fascinated what you found about April 6th. Well, I didn't find it, but Gordon Madsen did, okay. as Tell we've been that. working on the legal papers of Joseph Smith not too long ago. But the contract, the installment purchase contract. Between you know, Joseph. Joseph Smith. And his father-in-law. Father-in-law. Yeah. yeah. When Joseph Smith buys the house. Buying the eight acres of the farm. That's right. Now, they had just been living on that by the good graces of Isaac Hale. Yeah. And Joseph now wants to own that property. Mm -hmm. And Isaac is going to sell it to him. He, he agrees. You see, under uh, American and common law, a man's home is his castle, which means he can then determine who can come on and off of the property. And Isaac Hale, of course, was very curious and always wanted to know what's going on and was asking questions. And for whatever reason, Joseph wasn't comfortable bringing him in too much into this whole process. But when Oliver Cowdery comes and he's a scribe, he knows how to write uh, agreements. They do write out on April the 6th, the purchase agreement for the installments that uh, Joseph shall pay. Three or four installments should cover the whole cost. And then the document is signed by Joseph Smith and Isaac Hale. And then there are witnesses. Oliver, Oliver Cowdery, Cowdery is one of them. And Samuel, Samuel Smith, Smith is another one. And we have the dates exactly. We have so much records that coincide with the history of the translation. It's fabulous. So when Oliver Cowdery writes later, those days never to be forgotten, he says... April 5th, April 6th, we 
did some business. He doesn't say what it was. But then he does say the next day, April 7th, we began. Yeah, the ending date, of course, is June 30th. By the end of June, they're completely finished. So we know the beginning date, we know the ending date, but they don't start with the small plates. They have to start where no. the 116 pages ended, which is was Mosiah 3, but it's our Mosiah 1. They pick up where they had left off, which is right at the beginning of the uh, the book of Mosiah. We don't know whether they were at chapter 2 or chapter 3. But it had or... a 3 on the first edition, that's all. That's right. It's, we can't be exactly sure how much was done. But I don't think very much. Yeah, it sounds like we're walking into a play that's already started. And Oliver Cowdery and Joseph will then work day and night. That it could be translated in a little over 65 days. Absolutely amazing. 65 working days. 65 working days. Thank you, of course. Yeah, to clarify that, there's 85 total possible days. Yeah, but you have to take him out when he's moving and when he's... But about 20 of those days, we know he was doing other things. Uh, including giving 18 of the sections of the Doctrine Doctrine and Covenants and going to Colesville and back a couple times. 30 miles, whatever it was, yeah. yeah. And so I think we've been conservative. We haven't been trying to expand the number of days that weren't there. I think there probably were even, even more days that were unavailable than we've counted. Okay, so we now are into the text. He's translating, but when does the title page come? Because he's starting in Mosiah, you said, not the beginning. Yes. And we, uh, Joseph Smith says that the title page was the last page on the plates, the large plates of, of Mormon. We have that one fact. It was the last on the large plates. But we don't know yet. Did he translate the small plates first or the large plates? We think we're pretty close in saying it's got to be the large plates that he's continuing with because that's where he would have picked started. up. The confirmation of this is that when we had the birthday the bicentennial birthday of Joseph Smith in 2005 at the Library of Congress. We were invited to hold a wonderful two-day celebration there in the, uh, in the Library of Congress. And as a part of that, uh, James Hudson and the people there who were working with us wanted to pull out of their collection as many Joseph Smith items as they could and put on display. And they asked me for a list of things they might want to include and and other people uh, contributed to that list. Was the title page there? Well, I said, in addition to the things I know you have, this would be a great time if you could find the original copy of the copyright application that Joseph Smith filed on uh, June 11th, 1829, in the Western District Court of New York. Do the papers of the uh, archive still contain, you know, what happened when they consolidated these in the late 19th century? They brought them all to Washington. Did he find it, Jack? Well, he called me up on the phone and said, I think we've found what you're looking for. (gasps) The Library of Congress in D.C. has our original copyright request, which included the part from the title page, right? I mean, doesn't that... Because as we, we knew this before, that Joseph had come home with a copy, uh, just a, a, a filing, n- not an official copy, but a user's copy, a uh, duplicate of the official copy. So, And that's been folded and kind of torn off and things like that. And we've had that in the church records for quite a while. But now we found the clean official version, yeah. which had the full text and 
it contains as a description of the book, because you have to include a description of the book, and Joseph Smith included the title page, as we know it, of the Book of Mormon as the description on June 11th. Now, June 11th, he's not even finished with the translation. The translation no. finishes June 30th. Maybe 28th. Okay. Because okay. he's got the three and the eight witnesses. On those two days. The last okay. days of June. Okay. So this is suggesting that the title page was at the end of the Book of Moroni, and then he translated the, the small plates. Not the end of the Words of Mormon or something like yes. that. Yes. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. I love hearing the um, witnesses describe the translation. Do you remember when Emma said um, he would start wherever he left out without being known what would the words were before, that he was able to go through? Should we just talk a little about the Urim and Thummim in the hat for good, a minute? Good, Now, when Martin Harris was there, Martin describes a screen between them, and Emma describes the plate sitting on the table. But by the time Oliver comes, the plates are not being used— and to block out the light, he puts the interpreters, the Yerman Thummim, in the hat and puts his head in the hat. How do we know it's the Yerman Thummim, Jack? Because he says it is. But legally, what happens there? Well, on the uh, the legal matter, you know, we wonder, is Joseph using the seer stone still? He used that with Martin Harris uh, because you remember the time when Martin Harris wanted to try to trick Joseph just to test him. And he switched out one rock for another. And Joseph detected that. But on July the 1st, a year later, 1830, there will actually be a lawsuit filed against Joseph Smith in New York court, just over the border from Harmony. There was a woman who had apparently joined the church, given some money to the Colesville branch, and wanted it back. And she was claiming that Joseph Smith was a fraud. And so she was relying on New York law Uh, to get her money back and maybe with damages as well. At that trial, July the 1st, Joseph Smith appeared. Josiah Stoll appeared. Other people appeared. These are all people that Joseph had worked for. That's right. They had been his employer. And they were ready to testify that Joseph wasn't a fraud. He was an honest person. And he could actually do some of these things that people might not have uh, been willing to give him the credit for. But then the interesting legal point. So how does the judge decide is Joseph a fraud or not? And he looks in the New York statute book, and it says that in order to bring a fraud, action must be commenced within two years of the time of the alleged fraud. Otherwise, the claim is stale. As lawyers, we say the statute of limitations has run, and the case has to be dismissed. Well, how does this deal with the urine thummim? Well, because the claim was that Joseph had used the seer stone in translating and that that was a fraud because you can see the seer stone. And this is July 1st of 1830. And so two years before... The statute of limitations had just run. And so at least that court decided that because the testimony of everyone was that Joseph had not used the seer stone for two years or more... The action was dismissed. But he was translating the Book of Mormon that we know it during that time. And Joseph said he used the Urim and Thummim. And we have evidence now of that in another setting where they found Joseph innocent because he wasn't using the Sarah Stone. I got it. That's great. That's great. So, that's yeah. a little, little kind background. Of technical news. And yeah. 
Who knows? But at least Joseph testified that he had stopped using the seer stone. Yeah. Once Oliver Cowdery was there. The eyewitnesses describe him spelling out difficult words after he pronounces them. And so as we look at the original manuscript, and this is Brother Skousen's work is just fabulous. It is archaeological evidence that it took place as they said. There's no carrots. There's nothing up above. You know, it's in the same line, just as Joseph. It only happens a couple times, but enough to say that that's what's happening. And it sounds to me also like um, at least Joseph Knight recorded it this way, that Joseph had the scribes repeat back the phrase that they had just said. That's right. My wife and I actually decided we wanted to try this, and I encourage anyone to who, write out the Book of Mormon. This. You mean? Well, to sit down with someone uh-huh. and uh, somebody uh, open up a part of the Book of Mormon, and you read line by line. I like to use Royal Skousen's critical text because each of the lines is separately identified, kind of sense lines, and I think that's maybe the way. It was dictated, and Royal decided that because you can tell when Oliver Cowdery is dipping his pen in or into the ink, and that's probably coming after he's written down a line and read it back, and then dipping to start on the next one. So I have used a quill and had someone read as I write out. It is so slow. Now, when you and Jeannie did it, did you use a quill? No, we used a ballpoint pen. Okay. <laughs> but we wanted to know if you could actually do it the way this was done and what you, how you'd feel as, uh, and we'd take That's turns. fabulous, Jack. Being the reader or the scribe. I love it. And if you read a line and the person's trying to write it down as you read it, and then they read it back to you, and then you say correct, and then you read the next line and go on, and you, you just do this for 30 minutes and see how many words you can actually compose that way. How, how, how long did you guys do this? Was it just 30 minutes? Well, we did it a couple times, 30 minutes each. And we, uh, we learned that you can do it at a rate that would allow you to translate and transcribe the Book of Mormon within the time frame that, the jo- that Joseph Smith had. Now, would it have been slower with the quill, though? Uh, I think substantially, but I don't know. We'll have to ask Oliver. (laughs) I think you probably were not as good with a quill as Oliver was. Oliver would have been much faster. Yeah, and I think they were pretty good because we do have examples of of people taking down dictation with quill. Of course. I mean, look what they do with Joseph's sermons, yeah. And the title page is not written by Joseph. It was translated by Joseph, it was written by either Mormon or Moroni. We can talk about that a little more. Uh, Moroni and Mormon worked so closely together. Oh, they had to. And uh, for a long time. When Mormon dies, uh, Moroni is, I'm sure Mormon's last words to Moroni was, get it finished. (laughs) (laughs) Mormon's dead. And Moroni has to go into solitary hiding uh, because he says people will search for me, and if they find me, they're going to kill me. And, and it's years and years and years. But he ha- doesn't have to be told how to make plates or how to inscribe them. No, As because he, he had does, been working with his father. He finishes the last two chapters of the Book of Mormon, meaning the small Book of Mormon, chapters 8 and 9. Moroni writes those. Yes. 
And then he says goodbye to everybody. Uh At the end of the Book of Mormon, Moroni has his farewell. First farewell. Yes. And you know what he says there in that first farewell? What's he concerned about? He says, we're writing this so you won't blame us to think that we're responsible for the devastation of these people. It's it's Mormon 935. These things are written that we may rid our garments of the blood of the brethren who have dwindled in unbelief. He's feeling personally maybe responsible. Could we have done anything different to present it? Could we have helped? And he's being blamed. But Jack, then he adds the book of Ether a few years later. Well, after he's finished that, then he comes back and it's uh, 15 years later. Okay. 400 years from the time of the birth of Christ has, has passed. And Moroni says, well, I've been able to live this long. Jesus has appeared to me. He tells us that. And that uh, maybe he said, Moroni, remember, you and your dad promised back in Mosiah chapter 28 that an account would be given of the, uh, the Jaredites. The 24 gold plates. Which they had just found. They found. And people are going to want to know what those are. You were telling me that he first closes the book in the end of his father's chapter, right. of Mormon, and then he says another farewell in Ether, and another farewell in Moroni, and then we get the, the title, title page, page, which has his fourth farewell. That's right. And he's still alive. He has now survived 36 years by himself, hiding from those who are trying to take away the record. And he is the guardian of the record. So later in this year, when you get back to the end of the Book of Mormon, and you start... Mormon and Ether and Moroni. All of that. Remember to tie this in with the uh, the title page, because uh, I think the title page is then written as the very last thing that Moroni will compose. And he says, it's written by my father, Mormon, and so on. It's clearly in Moroni's voice. It is Moroni's voice. And some of his own concerns. Uh, he talks about meeting people at the judgment bar of God and knowing that this record is true. And that's at the end of the title page as well. In addition, however, I think that Mormon may have already composed something of the title page. I think Mormon may have instructed Moroni. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me because he had done all this editing. Remember, he was using that whole room that was filled with plates and he was trying records. I don't know if they were all plates and then trying to synthesize them into a meaningful testimony of our Savior. I think Moroni, when he was between 20 and 30 years old, probably worked during that 10-year peace that was declared between 350 and 360, closely with his father. So he's 20 years old. He's old enough. He is the most amazing research assistant Mormon could ever hope for. (laughs) He knows the project intimately. And that's, that's the way. And I think... They probably talked about, how's this going to be delivered? What are we going to do with this? And can you see God's hand in this, Jack? He completely orchestrates the warfare for a 10-year period of peace. Now, the book says they did it to regroup and heal. But God uses this timing to say, let's have these two great minds work together on compiling a record. God's hand is everywhere. It's just amazing.
So with all that background, let's look at the title page. All righty. Uh, it is, uh, it appears on the... You have your 1830 copy there? Yeah, I have an 1830, and you can see... It's just a replica, but it's pretty good. But you can see the uh, title page is word for word uh, the what's on the copyright application. But the way it's printed, both in our paper copies and the way it is in the 1830 and 1836 and 42, whatever, all the editions, we can't see the parallels. I'm sure you've heard the repetition, but you are the master at finding the poetic patterns in these things. Can you talk a little bit about the poetic patterns in the, the, the title page? Yeah, the structure of the title page. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's composed, I think, with prophetic uh, guidance and inspiration and beauty. It's not just dashed off to satisfy some legal requirement. It's his last will and testament. So some people might say, well, the title page, Joseph just, just went to the office of the uh, county <laughs> clerk and wrote this down. No, this has been composed by someone who is very well experienced in several different artistic forms of expression and who knows this record from start to finish. What you see here is that there are two halves of the title page. And in the first edition, it is broken into two paragraphs. In the first half, which may have been something that Mormon himself composed or instructed. Because it's about Mormon. It says it's written by the hand of Mormon. Account written by the hand of Mormon. And it says that it's an abridgment written to the people of Nephi and also the Lamanites. No mention yet of the Book of Ether. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And written to these Lamanites who are a remnant of the house of Israel and also the Jew and the Gentile. Written by way of commandment and also by the spirit of prophecy and revelation. That's a phrase that Mormon likes. Yes. And I want to talk about that after you're finished. But you finish about this, this beautiful poetic style here. And then fourth, it says that it was written to be sealed up and hidden unto the Lord, to come forth by the gift and power of God, and sealed by the hand of Moroni. And this is where I think Moroni begins. Sealed by the hand of Moroni and hid up unto the Lord to come forth in the due time by way of the Gentile, the interpretation thereof being by the gift of God. So what we have here in this first half are several things that are written in triplicate, you might say. We have three audiences, Lamanites, Jews, Gentiles. We have three ways in which it's written, commandments, spirit of prophecy, revelation. We have three ways that Mormon talks about it being sealed up to come forth by the gift and power. Moroni certifies three more ways in which it is sealed by the hand of Moroni to come forth by way of the Gentile to the interpretation of God by the gift of God. So we have three, three, three. It's, there's this kind of drumbeat of these triplets. And do we see that kind of style throughout the rest of Moroni? Or is he doing it here as three witnesses? Or is he doing great, it with... Great idea. Yeah, I have no idea. Well, three witnesses. Of course. Yes. Under Jewish law, having three witnesses was what you should have for most serious documents. And that's written right in things like the Old Testament, but it's also right in Second Nephi chapter 27 and in the book of Ether. But this ties in with the need for three witnesses, because how can Moroni seal this? He needs to call three witnesses. Oh, so he calls God and the Son and the Spirit. You got that. 
Oh, and Jack. Focus, and how do we know it's true? It's by the same witnesses. In Moroni 10, he says, oh, if you will ask God, the eternal father, in the name of Jesus Christ, he will reveal it by the power of the Holy Ghost. So for Moroni, the lone Moroni, he finds his three witnesses in the Godhead. And what a better witness could you ever ask Isn't for? That it's the wonderful. only way to know truth is from our God. You were mentioning um, in your notes that the second paragraph here on Moroni's work is actually quoting the book of Mosiah? Yes. When they were describing the ether, uh, the people of the Jaredites? That's right. So if we say, all right, so what does Moroni, why does he give us this second paragraph? He follows exactly the same triplicate pattern, but he first says it's an abridgment from the record of Ether, a record of the people of Jared. Now, remember that we talked about the people of Nephi and the people of the Lamanites, and now the third people is the people of Jared. Right. So we have that triplicate yes. completed. Okay. <laughs> and then he says, these were the ones who were scattered when the Lord confounded the language and when they were building a great tower. Okay, we're going back to Genesis. What is it? Chapter 11 or something with the, with after Noah's ark, the big thing then is the Tower of Babel. That's what we're right. talking about, the time and of that's Babel. That's what of course the book of Ether begins yeah. with. So this is before Abraham and about 2000. It's between Noah but and Moroni Abraham. Moroni isn't going back to Genesis for this. What he has is the book of Mosiah. Ah. And King Mosiah, one of the last things he does is he translates the 24 gold plates which he can, by the use of the uh, Urim and Thummim, can read and can tell people what has happened to but that. But he's told not to show it. That's right, because it contains a lot of stuff about secret combinations. And if this gets out, it will be, it'll the, be a problem. Just, yeah. So and he in says, fact, that don't ends up being share the case. it. Yeah. So what does Moroni do? He's listed those three things, which are three things that King Mosiah said as he described the book of Ether. But now he says, I'm going to show to the remnant of the house of Israel three things, great things that the Lord has done for their fathers. Well, that's just like the great building of the tower, even greater. Number two, to know the covenants of the Lord. So the Lord is mentioned. Previously, he had confounded the language. Now he is going to be remembered as the maker of the covenant. And number one that they were not cast off or scattered forever. And yet they're in reverse order so as you look three, at the text. That's right. Scattered, Lord, great thing are then reversed. Great things the Lord has done to know the Lord uh, and not, he's not a masterful. scattered. No wonder the Lord chose this Shakespeare, this young Shakespeare general to be our, our editor. This is amazing. Do you like that? Oh, I love it. The other thing I wanted to talk about was that little phrase that you mentioned earlier about the spirit of prophecy and revelation. Yes. That's in the first paragraph. Moroni is describing how this is to come to pass. And I'm always fascinated to find phrases that are biblical that are also repeated by Joseph in the Restoration, including in the Book of Mormon. So I looked up spirit of prophecy and I found it once in the Book of Revelation. Um, chapter 19, I think is verse 10. But interestingly, spirit of prophecy and revelation is never mentioned in the Bible. And so I decided to look through the Book of Mormon. Is Joseph Smith just copying a phrase that he'd heard from Revelation chapter 19? Well, the Book of Mormon 
has a total of 14 references to the spirit of prophecy. And two of those are the spirit of prophecy and revelation. So then I thought, well, let's look at the Doctrine and Covenants. No, it's only mentioned twice there. I then went to the Joe Smith papers and found it um, 10 times with spirit of prophecy, four times spirit of prophecy and revelation. I think part of the restoration was the importance of the spirit of prophecy. I think this was a very important message, not only in the Book of Mormon, but part of Joseph Smith's vocabulary that, that, that rung in his heart, that he knew that the restoration required the spirit of prophecy and revelation. Do you remember when Oliver Cowdery first comes and he's sort of asking, how do you know when it's the spirit? You know, I, we come in a second great awakening. There's people barking and jerking. There's camp meetings. There's revivals. How do you know it's the spirit? You know by the spirit of revelation. And this is the spirit that Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. I, I'm just fascinated that this was taught to Oliver and Joseph before they translated these things. That phrase is earlier than the translation. Isn't That's that just fabulous? Point. Yeah. <clears throat> now, it was a biblical phrase, but Joseph usually takes phrases from the Bible and then the Lord teaches him a new and different definition. Prophecy meant a testimony of Jesus Christ. It didn't necessarily mean that you're Elijah. <laughs> anyway, I'm touched by this here, right here in the text. And in fact, that brings us to the concluding lines of the, uh, the title, page. title page. Just as in the first half of the title page, Mormon had said how it was written, you know, by way of commandment, spirit of prophecy and revelation, uh, now Moroni will say why it was written. So there's an echo there. And why? How and now why? Why? To convince the audience one and audi audience two and three, the Jew and the Gentile, that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations, everyone. So there's another triplet there. The Christ the eternal God, so the Christ on earth, the eternal God in heaven, and to all the world. And if there's any faults, they're man's. Well, also in this week's Come Follow Me, we've got the introduction, we've got the Joseph Smith pages, we've got the three witnesses, but we don't have a record of Mary Whitmer's witness of Moroni and the plates. Joseph does the first half of the translation down in Harmony, and the persecution gets so bad down in Pennsylvania that he writes David Whitmer and says, can we come up here? And so poor Mary. Now, she's got eight kids, but six are still living at home, even though some of them are married. It is not an empty house. She is not an empty nester when she invites Emma and Joseph and Oliver to come and join. And Mary Whitmer... Um, is absolutely exhausted with all this company. And I think part of the problem was not only is it difficult to give up a room when your home is filled, but more than the food and the help, her sons are no longer helping her what they used to do. They're busy with the translation. They want to be part of this and no one is cooperating. And as someone who has tried to run a house, I feel very much for her by her frustration that the company is destroying the order of this home, especially when it's in upstate New York in early June, um, late May. This is a very important time in the farm. 
And these people were not willing to, to help like they should have been. So I, I look at her account and we have um, two accounts of her seeing Moroni. One is, you know, she was overworked and so um, Moroni let her see the place. Well, I don't know about you, but that always said, well, what about Emma? What about Lucy? What about anybody else? You know, so I'm really grateful we found another record of daughter's observation that was recorded and said, um, actually, my mom was going to kick him out. Uh, she, Mary Whitmer had had it. She went to bed saying, they are leaving. They can go back to Harmony. If The problem was when Oliver's hand got tired and Joseph's eyes got tired, they went out to the Susquehanna and started skipping rocks. And so it says in the record, I know, I know, it says in the record, if they can skip rocks, they can chop my wood. You know, this, this frustration. So she's decided, I'm kicking him out. And she gets up very, very early to milk the cows, probably four or five in the morning. And it's still misty. It's a very early in June. He is still in, in the process of, of, re, of translating. And um, as she comes out of the barn, she sees an old man. And it is not a shining angel. And he greets her and shows her the place. I think angels often come in scripture to turn people around. And this is another example. Emma was doing what was right. The spirit encouraged her. The spirit nudged her. She kept following the still small voice and she kept getting soft pats to move ahead. Whereas Mary, she, was, she had had it. I'm kicking him out. And the angel came and said, like Alma and the sons of Mosiah. Exactly. A total reversal. And so if the spirit is encouraging you, rejoice that it's soft nudges. If you don't really want a spanking from an angel. And Mary Whitmer turned her heart around and opened her home. And she chronologically is doing this prior to the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. But you probably know the law better than I do. I don't think women were allowed to have a voice of witness in legal court in America at that time. That's right. So her voice was not written as the legal record. Um, however, it looks to me like she was our first witness after the prophet Joseph. That is a very sensitive and inspiring explanation of that. Thank you. And I hope and we invite anyone, all of you, as you read the Book of Mormon this time, this year, Reference yourself back often to the title page and ask yourself, how is this chapter accomplishing this purpose that Mormon and Moroni set out to accomplish? It's the thesis right here at the beginning. And look at the warning at the end of the title page that says not to be critical and cast things off because of the errors of men. Uh, Moroni knows that he has probably made mistakes along the way. He's done the best he can. Well, and he wrote it in a different language than Joseph translated it. So it's fascinating to me to realize the errors of men are, are usually linguistic and cultural differences as much as anything else. Don't be frustrated because you're not from my culture and you're not reading it in my language. That's right. And of course, not being critical is, uh, is sometimes hard to do. Uh, but I think we're told to judge not, that we be not judged. And if we uh, get a little too critical too quickly, 
Put yourself in Moroni's position and think positively about the, the wonderful things that he suffered and, and managed to accomplish in his life to bring this forth. And then that it could, comes forth as such a marvelous work and a wonder or a miraculous miracle, the translation and this gift to the restoration is the, not just the keystone, not just the beginning, not just the foundation, but it for me is the answer to all the apostasy that had developed by the satanic counterfeits that had infiltrated into even well-intending good Christians. Plain Their misunderstandings are absolutely necessary in the Book of Mormon. And we'll point them out as we go along. It's going to be a great year. And hope may God bless you in your scripture study. Absolutely. Thanks very much.